Now have we journeyed to a spot of earth, remote the Scythian wild, a waste untrod. And now, Hephaestus, you must execute the task our father laid on you and fetter this malefactor to the jagged rocks in adamantine bonds, infrangible. For your own blossom of all forging fire, he stole and gave to mortals. Trespass grave for which the gods have called him to account, that he may learn to bear Zeus's tyranny and cease to play the lover of mankind. This is the After Dinner Scholar podcast from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Those words set the scene at the beginning of Aeschylus' play, Prometheus Bound. It's the god Prometheus who stole fire from Hephaestus and gave it, along with technology, to mortals. A race Zeus, newly crowned as chief god, intended to destroy. Dr. Virginia Arbery gave the 2023 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought this introduction to our seminar conversations about Prometheus Bound. The hubris of the Titans, uh, they're, they're said to be um, excessive in their capacities. They're dangerous because of their capacities. You may uh, remember that the Titans are birthed by sky and earth, this fundamental beginning of sky and earth mating, coming together every day, but they produce these very dangerous creatures, including this hundred-handed one that Pavlos mentioned. And Aeschylus takes on the great myth that is uh, in the air for all the Greeks um, well after Homer, 400 years after Homer, uh, a great myth in which uh, the continuing contest of gods is on full display. And it's a kind of, as Eric Vogelin puts it, a theomorphic setting for the battle within the soul, a, a battle that is interior and expressed externally in this great um, tension among the gods between the Olympian order that seems one ruled by decay and justice and reason and uh, a, a more primal order, the order of the Titans, which seems to be closer both to the earth and to the sky. So Aeschylus, who himself, uh, you may know, is a warrior, he puts on his tombstone, not that he was this great tragedian, right? The one who, as Aristotle says uh, in the Poetics, introduces a second character, uh, into the tragedies. At first, there's just one, so you don't really get a dialogue, uh, which might reflect on his interest in working with ambiguities. <clears throat> he also is one, Aristotle says, who emphasizes plot more than character. But Aeschylus is the warrior who fought at Marathon and at Sol Solomus, the great sea battle, but the great land battle of Marathon. He wants to put that as the epitaph on his tombstone. So he's very much a citizen, <laughs> very much someone who cares about the kinds of things that Athenians always worry about. That, and they often displace 
their current worries about the tension between the tyrant and the democratic order within their own city as a tension among the gods, uh, inclination of a more tyrannical god versus, say, a more democratic god as Prometheus. Um, Sophocles will do the same thing. He'll displace some of the difficulties within Athens as uh, transporting them back into an old Thebes and the tensions within Thebes as in the Oedipus plays. But here we, we get the gods themselves in contest and over a question of generosity to benighted mankind. You know, I think of the Cro-Magnon uh, man coming out of the cave shielding his eyes, these creatures of the day, right, who have eyes and ears but have no sight or hearing. It's almost like a passage from Isaiah. You have ears but you do not hear, eyes but you do not see. <coughs> we have a whole kind of anticipation of many biblical themes, it seems to me, in Aeschylus that makes him feel to us like a kind of prophet of our own tradition, of our own religious legacy. So uh, he's written 90 plays, but we only have seven of them. And we only have one of the three that deal with this theme that I've talked about of the Titans versus the Olympians. And this may be the middle play, the action before, probably anticipates, uh, we, can, we can suspect, deals with the stealing of the fire. The next play may deal with the resolution when the secret is out um, and we get a kind of savior figure of Heracles. As I mentioned a moment before, uh, the poetics says in Aristotle's attempt to understand everything, <laughs> including poetry, uh, claims that Aeschylus gives us plot. And yet plot depends on action. And there really is very little action <laughs> in this play. In fact, it's a play of stasis. You know? He's stuck on a rock at the end of the world, at the limit of the world, what a place which we uh, might associate with somewhat accurately with modern day Ukraine, just like we're stuck there in Ukraine. Um, it's Scythia. Uh, Herodotus has wonderful, wonderful section in his history about Scythia, but it's, it's the, you know, it's the tip of Europe toward Asia. Right? So it's this uh, borderline um, place where he's stuck. And, and we have to suffer through in, in an almost excruciating experience of pity uh, the nailing of this major figure, Prometheus. Right? We feel as though we're in a passion play, almost, at the beginning. Do we not? Right? We, we feel the nails coming in. Might and violence say, do it harder. Right? Make sure he's secure. We go from the top of the body to the bottom of the body. Excruciating. Uh, and this is, again, unusual in a Greek play. It's, this is the kind of thing that you would want to be off-scene, obscene, right? But we're experiencing it. And it gives us, of course, as figures with mortal bodies, a great sense of empathy for the figure who's supposed to be the violator, the sinner. 
He's the one who took pity on us dumb creatures of the day. Right. This Titan is the one who undertakes to save uh, mankind by giving them what he says, sowing in them blind hopes, which is puzzling, isn't it, when we read that line early on in the play. <coughs> so to give, him, to give them, these creatures who have the incapacity to survive, so these are just practical things that he gives them, right? To give them these uh, survival skills, you might say, <coughs> is uh, that for which he's punished, right? Minimal things. Not the kind of techne that results in beauty. Right? We're not talking about, I was listening to beautiful Mozart symphony on the way into the building today and thinking, that's not what Prometheus is giving. He's not giving us the gifts that the muses give. He's not, he's giving us very and I'm thinking of us as including the creatures of the day here. Um, he's giving us those very practical things without which we'd be too cold at night and not be able to have good food and not be able to uh, have any earth uh, plowed under for, for crops. He's the kind of farmer of human beings, right? He makes something come out of us as the farmer does out of the earth. He's sowing in us capacities which seem to us taken for granted. Now in the Ode to Man in Sophocles' Antigone, those things come from man. But in Prometheus's bound, these things come from the gods. They're gifts. And we should not presume to think of them otherwise. And he will stay on that stake forever <laughs> until his savior, his savior Heracles comes along in order to insist that he did the right thing. Right. On the other hand, might and violence represent this order of Zeus, the new god. Right? That's said at least eight times in the play. At least eight. <coughs> I stopped counting. But this new god, it already has an association of, if you want to talk about innovation in the human order as being dangerous, innovation in the divine order is even more dangerous, right? It, it always, it's always succeeded by a violent overthrow of the previous order. And so you know that Zeus overthrew his father Kronos. How? With the help of Prometheus, right? who gave him, at his mother's suggestion, Themis, the idea of guile and craft being used to overthrow the father Kronos, as Kronos has overthrown his father Uranos. So you have this succession of displacements. And we know from last night that Achilles then, in turn, is supposed to displace Zeus. So that's the central secret behind the scene here. We don't know exactly who it will be <coughs> that Zeus might marry, whose issue would then overthrow him, but we know there's some bad marriage ahead. Now let me just say a little bit about marriage. <laughs> Glenn always gets nervous. <laughs> But I, I know, I'm just telling you what's there in the Greeks here. Vernat, <laughs> uh, this French thinker who Glenn mentioned last night, says something that's pretty obvious if anybody's read Hesiod, right? Along with the problems of 
Prometheus. In the same breath, we would have to talk about the problems of marriage and women. Because in Hesiod, uh, the punishment for giving good things to mankind is the punishment of the creation of women, who will be a calamity for men forever. Right? This is what's said in Hesiod. I won't read you the passage. but. In fact, Athena makes this beautiful thing, and she's disastrous because she distracts man, man from his proper business, right? And oh, there's a little line about if you get a good wife, it's okay, but they're so rare and so unlikely, don't hope for it. But <laughs> so the connection between the Promethean and women is, is very strong. Right? It's kind of a Pandora's box uh, association there, and the connection between what will happen to bring about Zeus's demise and marriage is pretty overt. Right? And it also is important to note here that it's a, it's, it's a marriage between two gods right? <clears throat> that will bring about the overturn. But the wonderful thing about Homer and the tradition as it unfolds is that, in fact, it is the issue between the mortal Peleus and Thetis, who gives issue to the potential overthrower. So that elevates the human project a little bit more to think about not, not uh, a Zeus overthrowing Kronos, but an Achilles overthrowing Zeus. Anyway, at the beginning of the play, this new god is in the background, and he stays in the background through the whole play. We never see Zeus. He doesn't come on down, you know. Uh, we, we don't see his um, effects except through s the speech about him, right? He has the thunderbolt. And the last figure we see in the play, Hermes, will emphasize uh, you will be thrown now into TARDIS, not just being grilled in that horrible image of grilling in the sun, but now you'll be in darkness until uh, whenever your liberator might come. So Zeus has these effects right, of lightning, the bolt, um, all that power represented in Kratos and Bia, uh, the Greek words for might and violence in the play. And his uh, power is such that it looks as though there's no limit to it. That word limit is in the very first line of the play. And again, it occurs at least eight times in the play, if not more. Dr. Papadopoulos used the term to talk about human limits with respect to invention. But here in the first line, this is the world's limit, uh, one of many reputations, uh, uh, repetitions of that idea of what are the limits to Zeus's power? What are the limits to the sufferings of Prometheus? Is there any boundary to, to what uh, bad things can come out of this new rule and this so-called crime of Prometheus. And then we're visited, after we see these effects of Zeus early in the play, we're visited by one of his fellow Olympians, right, the lame Hephaestus, our figure from last night's meditation. And Hephaestus is given the task of this uh, uh, it's a, almost uh, torture, right, that we're, vis uh, that we're having to, to view in the play. But he uh, achieves his task with great reluctance, doesn't he? Right? He doesn't want to do 
that against the one who has actually betrayed him according to might. Remember the line, why do you not hate him since it was your honor that he betrayed to men in line 35. He plundered the gods' privileges and gave them to the creatures of the day, might says. But Hephaestus cries out, I hate this handicraft of mine. Do you remember that line, right? I hate it. I deeply hate it. I don't want to have to use it against him. Alas, he says to Prometheus, I groan for your sufferings. All right. Um, yeah, and then might and violence. It's as, as though we're on Golgotha. Say, hammer it more, nail the other arm safe, that he may learn for all his cleverness that he is duller witted than Zeus. But you know, all these visitors, there's like a parade of visitors that come to see um, Prometheus in this c helpless condition. And um, it, you know, it reminds us of Job, too, doesn't it? Right? You get all the visitors to Job. Some of them say, oh, sympathetic. But really, you really must have done something wrong, Job. <laughs> yeah. It's really your fault. <laughs> right? Somewhere in, in the past, there's this groaning that the only thing Job can do after these visitations, just as Prometheus can do after the daughters of Ocean come to see him, the chorus is groan. Right? Right? He groans until he pours out like water. So we recognize the cruelty of this absent God, and we think that this figure in our own day, who has the, uh, you know, the association with going too far, Promethean power, Prometheus and Frankenstein, all of those aspects that almost seem Luciferian about Prometheus don't seem so in this play. We don't see in this ancient text uh, I don't think, at least I don't think the tone of the play allows it, we don't see an evil Prometheus, and yet he's a tragic figure. So what is his mistake, if any? That's something you'll have to talk about in seminar, it seems to me. Our own sensibilities as spectators in this play, we're, we're pushed to the limit about what we can tolerate as we see the condition of Prometheus bound. We're pushed to the limit in two ways. One, by the graphic head-to-toe constriction of him, which I've already mentioned and, and tried to call up in our sensibilities now. But secondly, we're pushed to the limit ourselves in accepting the justice of this command by the Supreme God, by a God who elsewhere in Aeschylus' plays is benign and truly just, right? In the Oresteia, in the Agamemnon, the first play in that trilogy, this is what's said of Zeus. Zeus, who guided men to think, who has laid it down that wisdom comes alone through suffering. So Zeus is the guider of thinking in the Agamemnon, but can we accept that this is the same kind of Zeus? in Prometheus Bound. Instead, it seems that Prometheus allows men to think, to be, to not only be, but to, to live well, right? To have the tools to live well. Um, he looks upon, he tells the chorus, he looked upon the unhappy breed of mankind 
right? Um, in, intending not to blot them out, as Zeus did, as Zeus intended to do, but to raise them up, to give them a chance, just a chance, right? Zeus is going to blot them out. Now, there are other kinds of myths circulating, as I said, about Prometheus and the human race. And uh, actually, one of them is uh, much later than the earlier myths, but it's uh, the Protagoras. And in the Protagoras, the sophist says, you know, talks about the similar predicament of mankind uh, beginning without everything they need, right? And in it, uh, Zeus recognizes that the beasts have claws and they have big teeth and they have all kinds of speed and all kinds of advantages over men and that he's left men defenseless. So he provides thinking and skill and cunning, right? And then he, he still finds Hermes reports to them, but they're killing each other anyway, because you gave them thought and they're killing each other instead of just protecting themselves from the beast. And so then Zeus has to reach, okay, so now what do we need? And he said, ah, I forgot to give them shame. <laughs> they have no awe, they have no idols. So I'd like you just to hold that thought in mind, perhaps maybe in the play that we're actually reading, uh, because it, that may be part of understanding Zeus's tyranny. How do we keep, how do we keep, all right, I'm looking at you, Marie. Once you've been to Paris, how do you stay on the farm? You know, how do you keep them down? How, how do you keep them down once they have these capacities so that they retain their awe toward the divine order? And that may be part of what we're looking at here, right? Um, anyway, Prometheus says to the chorus, uh, but man's tribulation that I would have you hear, how I found them mindless and gave them minds, not Zeus, <laughs> made them masters of their wits. I will tell you this, not as reproaching man, but to set forth the goodwill of my gifts. Right? First they had eyes, but they had no eyes to see, ears, but they heard not, they knew not how to build, he says their brick houses to face the sun, nor work in wood. They lived beneath the earth like swarming ants in sunless caves. This is around line 445 to 470. Right. And yet for all his generosity, he's kind of like, uh, it's as though he's in the situation of Christ on the cross at this point, right? As he's being taunted by the chorus, the Oceanids will say to him, well, you've done all this stuff, but you're the doctor who can't heal yourself, right? right? You've healed everybody else, but you can't heal yourself. I, I just can't help, but uh, as I'm sure you did, hear all the resonances with our own religious tradition, right? You're the doctor who cannot heal himself. And this increases our, our sympathy for him, right? We, we can hardly uh, rouse up in ourselves a liking for Zeus for, for doing this, right? His gifts even include 
not only having helped Zeus attain his throne from his father, but also providing for all the Olympians the fire that is the means of honoring them through sacrifice. Right? If the mortal order <laughs> didn't have the fire, there wouldn't be the thigh bones rolled in fat that would ascend to the Olympians. They would lack honor. They would lack the awe they deserve from the human order. Uh, and so for this, right, this is talked about in line 490 on page 157. For this, he's bound. Now, what's left out by uh, Aeschylus is the fact that when there was a contest about sacrifices to the god, Prometheus tricked Zeus. And th Zeus does not like to be tricked. This is not something you do to the head god. So he wrapped the thigh bones in such a way that they looked like they were in fat, but they weren't, and so the, the sacrifice just petered out. And Prometheus thought it was a fun kind of trick, but Zeus never forgave him for it. And that's when he hides the fire in the, uh, what we say in Italian, finocchio, the, the fennel stick. The fire was inside the narthex, it said in your play, but it's an, hidden in a fennel stick <coughs> by Zeus. That's what Prometheus steals, right, and then gives to mankind. So, um, you know, there's a long history, and some of it is left out for some reason by uh, Aeschylus, in part, I think, to position our sympathies all the way on the side of Prometheus in the way that tragedy does, calling up our, our feeling for him. <coughs> but I mentioned before that there seems to be also a regret that there's no termata, the Greek word for limit, to how long this will go on. There doesn't seem to be either any limit to Zeus's power. He is the only one, if we look at line 49, this is on page 140, Zeus is the only one who's fully free. He's the only one who's free, for only Zeus is free, right? And in his conversation with Hephaestus then, Prometheus says, you know, Give it up. <laughs> this is what happens when one tries to confront Zeus. Um, he doesn't seem to be accountable for what he does. He doesn't have any auditors over him, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to pay any price for his decisions, whereas Prometheus seems to pay, uh, he, he's the very figure of the cost of human technology, right? The very cost of it means that a higher one, a god, has to suffer for human beings. Right? But Zeus doesn't seem to, to have to suffer this. He has, he has free range, no limit to his order. Um, on line 151, this is, uh, rather page 151, line 311, this is where the father of the chorus, Oceanos, which wraps around the shield of Achilles, you might remember, is, is talking to him. And he's coming as one of those good ambassadors, like the ambassadors to, to Job in our own tradition. Um, and he says, look, I'm just going to talk to Zeus, so I'm going to be fine. 
<laughs> we're going to get you out of this fix. Remember? And Prometheus, is, there's no PA fill. There's no persuasion. There's no possibility of persuasion. All right, to put it bluntly, to speak politically, there's no real politics in the Olympian order because there's no disputation. There's no conversation. Right? Um, but anyway, Oceanus is still hoping that he can get them somewhere. And, and so he's kind of shifting the argument from persuasion now to, okay, then just give in, Prometheus. This is about line 312. My poor friend, give up this angry mood of yours and look for means of getting yourself free of trouble, yeah? Maybe what I say seems to you both old and commonplace, but this is what you pay, Prometheus, for that tongue of yours, which talks so high and haughty. You are not yet humble. Still, you do not yield to your misfortunes, and you wish indeed to add some more to them. Now, if you follow me as a schoolmaster, <laughs> you will not kick against the pricks, seeing that he, the king, that rules alone, is harsh, and sends accounts to do no one's audit for the deeds he does. Now, I will go and try if I can free you. Do you be quiet, do not talk so much, Right, uh, suggesting you know the tyrant might hear you. Right, this is typical attribute of the tyrant. He he inhibits talk and conversation because it might be against him. Right, pretty much squares with what Aristotle says the tyrant is in Book Five of the Politics. Right, so Oceanus is pretty uh, is is clearly um, giving us the range of uninhibited freedom that Zeus has, the fact that there's no oversight over him. And so he shifts it to Prometheus's fault, just be quiet, right? Just submit. This new god is in charge. And you know, he says, that new ways for the new god rule among the gods. Now, I, I couldn't help but think, those of you who know Machiavelli, how <clears throat> the way that Zeus is portrayed here is uh, later described very fully in the 16th uh, century by Machiavelli as the new modes and orders of the new god. Zeus is being depicted here as the one, because he has preeminent power, can do whatever he wants. And so why should we like him? <laughs> why, sh why should we favor him? Why should we think of Prometheus as having a flaw, a, a tragic overstep, uh, as the Titans are always said to do? Why should he be humbled, be said to be high and haughty for having been a benefactor, uh, for being the one who in fact elevates a possibility of the human race to a commerce between the human order and the divine order through sacrifice. So I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I'm going to split you up into two groups <laughs> with the faculty being split up so you can yourselves, though I'm not finished yet, talk about this question of the overrule of Zeus as the new god imposing new modes and orders in, in the whole cosmos, right? So <clears throat> one thing you might think about um, as you look at the play, if we were just left with Zeus 
with his preeminent power, with no threat over his own. Right? If we weren't given a Hermes who comes in because Zeus is very nervous <laughs> that what happened to his father and his father before him might happen to him. Right? So he wants that secret, that ace in the hole that Prometheus said. If that wasn't part of the play as presented, though we don't see it acted out, but it is anticipated. If that weren't part of the, of the play, we would think that in the whole economy of the divine and human order, there's a fundamental injustice. Right? But because this figure Heracles who will save Atlas, right? this figure Heracles who will save poor Io, right? the, the, the pretty girl with the cow horns on her head, stung by a gadfly forever, it seems like, until Prometheus, because of his foresight, can tell her that it will end <coughs> through a Heracles, right? If there weren't that figure anticipated in the play, we would think that the divine order is unjust, that there's a fundamental injustice in the cosmos, right? <coughs> so that anticipation, it seems to me, is important, though it's not worked out in the actual action of the play. We know that though the human and divine order have a great distance between them, there is also a mediating figure, right? And that mediating figure, again, it seems to me, is one that does not compromise the strong god, the idea of the strong gods, as Rusty Reno likes to talk about it, but it makes the strong god actually one that one could assent to in the human order, right? Uh, in other words, um, well, if we just had the scene of Noah, right? Uh, it, or rather, if we just had the flood without Noah, we would think of the Lord of the Old Testament as tyrannical, right? If we didn't have forgiveness for um, the people of Israel after their transgression, we might think of the God of the Old Testament as simply tyrannical, but there's an intermediary figure of Moses, right? There's an, there are intermediary figures throughout the Old Testament that give us this possibility of communion between the divine and the human order instead of absolute separation. So the play intimates that as well, it seems to me. And again, we know this because something is higher than Zeus. They call it mora or fate, right? Uh, Prometheus says on line 512, fate is over the gods. Ananke or necessity is higher than the gods. So uh, craft is weaker than necessity. And he himself recognizes that his own craft is weaker than, that, than fate, as Zeus will see himself. Um, so the tragedy, this is Aeschylus's achievement, it seems to me, in this play, um, does not assert man's priority as much as show through the figure of Prometheus how to make man part of the whole rather than cast out from the whole divine order. So that when we looked at the shield of Achilles last night where you see the Oceanus circling the, the whole actions that are being depicted that are due to the craft of Hephaestus, right? When we see now those same 
activities that Prometheus provided, uh, not to the level of beauty, but to the level of efficiency and survival. When we see those things surrounded now by hope rather than mere disaster, uh, the human order now partakes of the divine. It is not relegated to the cave. It partakes of light. It is not relegated to the darkness. But the figure of Prometheus is to suffer through the time needed for fate or what we might hope for in providence to undo the mistakes of the haughty and the prideful beforehand. So this is a larger economy than we see in the play. I think it's important to see Zeus through Io as well as through Prometheus. It seems like another play within the play almost. Right? Here's this cow girl. No pun intended here in Wyoming, <laughs> who is, you know, the, a rape victim, right? <laughs> and because of the angry wife, the always troubling wife, right? Hera, she's consigned to this wandering for, it seems like, in perpetuity. Um, she is. Um, I, I, I don't know if she's as miserable as Prometheus is. I think she seems more miserable. <laughs> right? uh, she complains constantly of her suffering, but Prometheus, after a point, stops complaining. Right? But what his role is, as it is, it seems to me, for the whole human order, is to give us hope. So foresight giving us hope and possibility where he says to her on line 8, 10, page 171, from her seed shall spring one brave and famous for archery. Right? This is the prophecy of Themis, and he shall set me free. Right? This is the fulfillment of what we won't see, but which is anticipated through Themis, then through Prometheus to the spectators in the play. So in his crushing fall, shall Zeus discover how different are rule and slavery. Right. Again, this seems to me to be part of the political teaching of the play, which is an, another direction. It seems to me then just looking at the technological implications. But if man is being faulted for elevating uh, is Prometheus is being faulted for elevating man from his uh, slavery under Zeus. Um, he also is the one who, through his transgression, teaches the tyrannical order the difference between rule and slavery. So that may be the applicable teaching. Um, finally, I think in seminar it might be useful for you to think about um, yeah, the difference between not just the tyrannical order of Zeus and what Prometheus promises human beings, but in fact, is the play teaching us something about techne or craft at a very fundamental level, different than the level to which we've taken it? <laughs> is the level that Prometheus provides to human beings good? Is 
they're another level of technology implicated in the simple level, however, that could be very dangerous. Is fire dangerous uh, to provide basic needs, or does fire lead to CHAP GPT? I'm, I'm not sure what the bridge is there, but we might want to think about it. In other words, are the very opening of capacities to do things that make life better, that alleviate our estate, lead to more and more and more things that seem to not only alleviate our basic needs, but alleviate thinking, that alleviate the virtues of a warrior, that just alleviate us from being, as it were, fully human, and therefore worse than the cavemen that we're seeing at the beginning of Prometheus Bound. That gilded statue flying over the skating rink at Rockefeller Center in Manhattan is Prometheus, very much unbound. It is perhaps predictable that he would find his image in the center of New York City, and let's be honest, in the center of far too many hearts and minds today. We'll return to Prometheus throughout the summer as we present additional lectures from the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.